Well, amen to that. Good morning, Baylife. How are we? It's so good to be with those of you who are here in this room and those of you who are joining us online. Uh, as Mark said, my name is Travis Lowe, and I'm the teaching pastor on staff here at the church, uh, which means I wear a couple of different hats. Uh, one of them is that I oversee the Baylife Resources page online. So myself and a team of incredibly talented authors contribute weekly. Uh, these articles that sort of unpack uh, issues of the Bible and culture, and so that's one of the things that I do. My wife and I also manage our church's podcast called The Stone Table, where we interview pastors, authors, theologians, artists, and talk about what it means to follow Jesus in this day and age, which is something that I absolutely love to have the opportunity to do. And the other thing that I do is I oversee some of our theological education classes. So right now I'm teaching a class on church history, which a number of people have signed up for. That's been mind-blowing to have 100 people on a Zoom call uh, talking about ancient heretics. Uh, but it's been awesome and, and really exciting. One of the classes coming up that I'm super excited for is not one that I'll be teaching, but one that will be taught by one of our elders here at the church, Jerry Greaves. The class is called The Bible and the End Times. And it's starting next week, uh, November 10th. It's gonna go for the next three weeks. It's a hybrid class, both online and in person here on our campus. Uh, and over the course of these three weeks, Jerry's gonna unpack the different Christian views of Christ's return. Contrary to popular belief, left behind is not the only way of thinking about Jesus' second coming. And I'll go out on a limb and say it's not even the best way of thinking about Jesus' second coming. But Jerry is actually, hey, I got an amen. There's some amillennialists in here. Um, you'll learn what that is if you take Jerry's class. So Jerry is going to be uh, teaching this class for us. I'm so very excited about that. Uh, and if you want to register for that, there's still time to do so. You can go to baylife.org end and register there and we'll send you the Zoom link or give you details. So those are some of the hats I wear, but I think the most important hat that I wear is that I get to teach God's word on Sunday mornings here uh, every so often. And so I want to invite you now to open in the Bible to the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verses 1 through 7. If you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we as a church have been walking together through the book of Exodus. We've been doing this kind of systematically. We began at the beginning. And we are just trudging along with Israel through the, through the wilderness. And for the last couple weeks, we have been in the wilderness. God has set Israel free from slavery and tyranny in Egypt. He's brought salvation. He's led them through the Red Sea. He's led them for three months of wandering in the wilderness. And now, in our text this morning, he brings them to the foot of Mount Sinai. And this is the part of Exodus where the book begins to change. It begins to, to shift in its tone. Exodus is kind of a part one, part two book. Part one is all narrative. Here's how Israel was doing in Egypt. Here's how God set them free. Part two is legal. The, the second half of the book of Exodus uh, fills, fills its pages with laws and regulations and rules. The sort of things, and I've said this before, but the, the sort of things that kill your Bible in a year reading plan because your eyes sort of glaze over and you just say, I'm gonna skip to John 3.16. And we've come to the, the part of Exodus known as the Ten Commandments, and so we're marking this sort of transition in the text and in our series by beginning a new series. We're calling it The Big Ten, which I think is a sports reference, but I really and truly know nothing about sports. <laughs> and for the next five weeks, we're gonna be walking through these Ten Commandments. 
these ancient laws that God gave the people of Israel on their journey towards the promised land. But, but I, I just want to confess to you this morning, one of the hats I wear as teaching pastor is sort of teaching rather than preaching and doing some theological education. I'm going to put that hat on this morning for the first half of our time together. Because if we're going to spend the next five weeks walking through the Ten Commandments, these ancient laws, we actually have to do a little bit of work ahead of time for this to make sense, to kind of set the course for what is to come. Because the the reality is that I think many of us, if you've grown up in evangelicalism in particular, have been sold a thin and possibly an anemic version of Christianity. Another amen. Amen. But it's a thin, it's an anemic version of Christianity. It's one that doesn't bother with the Old Testament. Uh, One of the uh, people that my wife and I interviewed on our podcast recently is a a theologian named Sung Chan Ra. And Sung Chan Ra is a professor of church planting at North Park Seminary. He wrote a book on the book of Lamentations. And in our conversation, he he cited a statistic, I don't remember it exactly, but it's something to the effect of 50 to 60% of your average evangelical church's teaching comes from the New Testament and the letters of Paul. We completely ignore the Old Testament. I mean, it's there. It's, it's in the first half of our Bibles. We just don't read it very often. And one of the reasons we do that is because we've developed this idea that somehow, especially the law of the Old Testament, has nothing to say to us today. That was Old Covenant. This is Jesus. That was then. This is now. Things are different. Don't bother me with all of these rules and regulations I just want to love people. But here's the problem with that. When you read the New Testament, the Ten Commandments in particular show up all over the place. There's a story in Mark's Gospel of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response to him in Mark 10 is, you know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, Don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and your mother. Now, the reality is that that Jesus doesn't give him the Ten Commandments as an answer to his question of how to inherit eternal life. Jesus goes on to say that you must give up everything and follow me in order to inherit eternal life, but it's not insignificant that when Jesus describes a righteous life, when Jesus describes a life that's marked by love of neighbor and love of God, he goes to the Ten Commandments. Paul does the same thing in the book of Romans, chapter 13. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments are, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment, it's summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul goes back and he says, you want to know what loving your neighbor looks like? It's the commandments. The Ten Commandments give you a framework of what loving God and loving neighbor looks like. He doesn't say it brings you salvation. Keeping the Ten Commandments is not salvific, but it does describe what life under the governance and guidance of God looks like. This has been understood from the very beginning of the church. We're in church history right now, so I am neck deep in old dead theologians currently. And it is astounding to me how well even the most illiterate Christians knew their Bibles. They knew their Bibles well. And this is because the discipleship of the church for nearly 2,000 years has revolved around three things. The Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. When, When somebody converted to Christianity, they were taught Christian theology, 
through the Apostles' Creed, which we tackled earlier this year. They were taught Christian spiritual disciplines through the Lord's Prayer, which maybe we'll tackle in the future. And they were taught Christian ethics. They were taught how to live as Christians through the lens of the Ten Commandments. This was important to Christians. But we live in an era in which knowledge of the Ten Commandments is not what it used to be. There was a a poll that was done recently to see how familiar our culture was with this portion of the Bible. It found that only 14% of Americans could name the Ten Commandments. Now, that that actually might, maybe you hear that and you go, that's not so bad. 14% of a country this big is, is a lot of people. But let me give you some other statistics to kind of put that in perspective. By contrast, 50% of Americans can name every single member of the Brady Bunch, a show which was canceled before I was even born. 25% of Americans can name all seven ingredients in a Big Mac, which I can't do, but I guarantee you I've consumed more Big Macs than I have lived days on this earth. 75% of Americans can name all three stooges which I think I can do. 14% can name the Ten Commandments. And here's what makes that statistic even more scary. 65% of Americans claim to be Christians. So 65% of people in this country claim to be Christians. 14% know the Ten Commandments. And it would be easy to hear that and lay the blame at the feet of our culture and point to our society that is increasingly secular and post-Christian and say it's their fault. Or point at the way that college classrooms can sometimes be hostile to faith and say it's the university's fault. But here's the reality, Baylife. Those numbers reflect more poorly on us than they do the culture. It's not to say that this isn't a difficult moment to be a Christian. It's not to say that society uh, doesn't have some some hostility towards uh, historic Christian belief, but there are no college professors who are forcing people to forget the Ten Commandments. They didn't know them to begin with, and that's our fault. Where we have failed to disciple, the world has picked up the slack. And it's discipled us in pop culture rather than the things of God. We need the Ten Commandments. We as the church need to recover this portion of Scripture. But I want to be clear that this is not purely some sort of a a negative thing. I don't want to inculcate in us a, a sort of siege mentality of the world out there is really hostile and so we need the Ten Commandments to protect us. Because the reality is that the Ten Commandments are not just walls to keep evil out, but they are fences within, the good li- within which the good life can be lived. They are space within which true flourishing can take place. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, so far, I've used the phrase the Ten Commandments to describe this portion of Scripture, but that's not actually a biblical term. The Bible never uses the term Ten Commandments. If you go a little bit later into Exodus 44 and also the book of Deuteronomy, when this passage is referenced in the Hebrew, the the exact translation is the Ten Words. The Ten Words of Yahweh. And that's because there are these ten declarations that Yahweh makes. And this is not the first time that, that God has spoken ten words. Actually, if you go all the way back to the book of 
Genesis, chapter one. We're told that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters, and God said. And that phrase, God said, occurs over and over and over again over the next week of creation. It occurs 10 times exactly. God said. God speaks the world into being in 10 words. And he's just called Israel out of Egypt. He's brought about this miraculous salvation. He's going to make them into a new nation. And so in order to renew Israel, in order to make them into a new creation, he speaks 10 more words. These 10 words bring life. They are life-giving in their power if they are kept. How does that work? Like most of the Ten Commandments are shout nots. Here are the things you should not do. And in our kind of modern Western American society, our concept of freedom is that we can do whatever we want. That's what it means to be free. That's what it means to live a life of flourishing, to have every option open to us. But I think that's wrong. Let me explain what I mean. Um, this, this past week, uh, my wife and I celebrated our one-year wedding anniversary, which is mind-blowing. Um, and, oh, oh, that's nice of you, thanks. Um, in order to, to celebrate, we decided to go to um, my family's ranch in North Carolina. Um, one of my dad's cousins, she and her husband own a farm. It's about 300 acres in the town of Lincolnton. And they took this barn that was on the property and they renovated it and turned it into an apartment. So it is very cool, very Pinterest worthy. Um, Would definitely be a super host on Airbnb if that was a thing. But this farm, it's been a homestead for hundreds of years. And when Rob uh, bought the farm, he built fences all across it. Some of them are electric fences, some of them are wooden fences, some of them are just ropes but the cattle seem to know that they can't cross the rope. There's all of these different pastures on the farm, and the the, the animals that live there are free-range. They're free-range cattle, free-range chickens. But they can't go anywhere they'd like. The, The reality is that if they were to go into the eastern fields, that's where the grass is stored for winter. And if they go into the eastern fields and they eat all of the winter grass, well, then they're not going to live free on the range for very long, because when the winter comes, there will be nothing to eat. If they were to go to the the northeast, the the fence is electrified so that they won't cross it. Why? Because that leads to the creek where all the coyotes are. And so if the, the cattle were to roam towards the creek, well, they wouldn't be roaming for very long because they would encounter coyotes, and coyotes and cows don't mix. Right, The fences, the walls, are not there to keep them from living a full life. They are there so that they will live a full life. The fences are there not to prevent them from flourishing or to keep them from growing. They are there so that these animals will flourish long term. And so it is with the 10 words. These 10 words bring about God's creative action in our life. They are life-giving words. They are fences given so that we can flourish. So what do they say? Our passage this morning begins in chapter 20, verse 1. It says, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The the 10 words begin with what most scholars would consider to be an introduction. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Before God gives instruction, he offers a reminder. He offers a reminder of both his character and his actions. Here is what I have done, here is who I am, and here is who you are in relation to me. You are the people that I have redeemed. You are the people that I have brought out of the land of Egypt. And I think that's actually profoundly important for us because there's this sort of temptation in our hearts as human beings to think that God's faithfulness, God's love towards us, it is conditioned on our faithfulness to him. That that God will be faithful to us when we do what he says, that our salvation depends on us holding up our end of the deal. And it's not surprising that we sometimes feel that way because that's how human relationships work. The idea of love at first sight is not true. You fall in love with people as you see their character. I love my wife because over years I have seen her integrity and her dignity and her character and her faithfulness. And so we map that onto our relationship with God. How will God love me when God sees me doing what God wants me to do? And we map that onto salvation too. We think, how is it that we're saved? We're saved by doing the things that God tells us to do. That is not how the gospel works. Not only is it not how the gospel works, it's not even how the Old Testament works. Did did you notice this? Before God gives Israel any laws, he has already saved them. He doesn't come to them in Egypt and say, here are the 10 commandments. If you do this, I'll let you go. He has set them free already. They've already been saved. They've already been delivered. God's salvation comes to us through his faithfulness and in spite of our faithlessness. That is how God saves. And that's how salvation comes to us through Jesus. Jesus doesn't show up on earth and give us a list of commandments and go, if you guys, if you guys can really make it through these, then I'll go to the cross for you. No, Jesus has already paid the price for our salvation, set us free from the tyranny of sin and hell and the devil, and then he calls us to obedience. Maybe this is why the New Testament uses adoption as the metaphor for salvation. I know many of you here at Baylife have either been adopted or have adopted children into your home. Let me just first affirm the, the dignity of that practice. We as Christians must be holistically pro-life. And and there is a a profound weight that scripture places on caring for the fatherless and the orphan. But in the adoption process, you don't bring a child into your home and say, if you act like a member of this family, maybe you can become a member of this family. No, you bring that child into your home and say, you are a member of this family. Let me show you how to live like it. And that's what God does here. I have saved you. You are my people. I am your God. Let me show you how to live like it. Our good works are not the source of our salvation. But let me be clear. Our salvation should fuel good works. And so God reminds Israel 
of their salvation before he calls them to obedience. And the first thing he tells them to do is this. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, I think it's important here to to talk a little bit about theological math. Um, I'm just going to confess to you, I'm real bad at math. It's what kept me from graduating college on time. But different branches of Christianity count the Ten Commandments in different ways. We, we all have different ways of counting to ten. We know that there are ten commandments because Exodus 30 and Deuteronomy 4 both say so. But how we count the ten words differs. So let me explain what I mean. Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestant Lutheran Christians see the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, and the, uh, the second commandment, if you will, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. They see that as a single commandment. No other gods, no graven images. They say that's all the first commandment. And when you get down to covetousness, they see the, the, the commandments about coveting as, as two distinct commandments. Reformed Presbyterian Calvinistic Christians see this, I am the Lord, have no other gods before me, and don't make a graven image. They see that as two separate commandments. And they see the, the line about coveting as a single commandment. This is why, if you've ever been to a a Presbyterian church or a more Reformed church, they don't have really any pictures on their walls. They don't have any images of Jesus. They very often don't depict Bible characters because they believe that that would be a violation of the second commandment. Now, let me me put my cards on the table for you. Uh, There are godly people on all sides of this discussion. This is not a salvation issue. There are people who love the Lord who, who disagree here. As somebody who who is fairly staunchly in the Reformed theological camp, I actually think that the Catholic math works better. I actually think no other gods and no graven images are a single commandment. And the reason why I think that is because in the ancient world, the way that you worshipped any god but Yahweh was through a graven image. It's synonymous. It's not like some people used idols and other people didn't. Israel was the only people who did not use idols. So when God says, no other gods before me, no graven images, that's sandwiched together. That's part of the same commandment. So the first commandment, God forbids idolatry, that is the worship of other gods and the worship of Images. He forbids us from giving our allegiance and our love to anything other than him. And I think that's ultimately an act of mercy on his part. Some people have looked at that and said, isn't that selfish? Isn't that petty? Doesn't that sound insecure? Right? He's so worried that some other God might be worshipped that he has to demand loyalty. But the reality is that this is merciful because the nature of the human heart is such that we will become like what we worship we will take on the image of whatever we set up as ultimate. So the, the simple, inconsequential example of this comes from my high school guitar class. So I started playing guitar probably in the eighth grade. Patty Fuller, who works here at the church, taught me uh, a few basic chords, and I, I sort of, through the internet, figured out a little bit more and more to the point that signing up for Guitar One in high school was basically having a free period because I knew everything that they were supposed to teach me. And the interesting thing about 
uh, guitar is that when you start to play guitar, you end up going down sort of a rabbit hole. Because in the last 70 to 80 years, there have been a number of really significant guitar players. And everybody kind of picks their favorite. And so this was the interesting thing in my guitar class. I could figure out who each person's guitar idol was based on the way they dressed. So the kid who got really into Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin started wearing the bell bottoms, even though those are like 30 years out of style when I'm in high school. The kid who discovers the big four of thrash, which are obviously Slayer, Megadeth, Anthrax, and Metallica, starts wearing the acid-washed jeans with the white Nikes so that he can look like Kirk Hammett. Right? Because we become like what we idolize, consciously and subconsciously. That happens with idols as well. Psalm 115, two through eight, it says this. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him, but their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Noses, but cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel. Feet, but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. When we worship idols, we become deaf, dumb, and mute, just like our idols. But the God of the Bible is not like the gods of the nations. He sees, he hears, he speaks, he loves, he lives. And when we worship the living God, when we keep the first commandments, we too experience life in its fullness. It's not just that God is selfish for worship, It's that worship of the one true God is what is best for us. And so he forbids the worship of graven images that would misrepresent him. Of course, it's not that there aren't actually images of Yahweh in the world. Actually, there's billions of images of Yahweh in the world. You probably woke up next to one this morning. You probably rode to church with one this morning. You're in a room filled with them right now. Let me remind you of what the book of Genesis says, as God makes man. The Lord said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. We are forbidden from making images of God because God has done it himself in creating human beings and making us in his image. We are meant to be the signposts to the glory of the immortal, invisible God. Which brings us to the second commandment. By my Catholic math. Verse seven, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This commandment has been widely, widely, widely misunderstood as being a linguistic prohibition. Here are the the things you can't say. When when I was in the seventh grade, I made the jump from private school to public school, and boy, was that a wake-up call. The first couple weeks, I was in the lunchroom in middle school, and I finally worked up the nerve to sit down at this table full of kids who seemed like they would be nice, and they were nice, but man, I learned the meaning of the phrase to curse like a sailor. 
it is amazing the words that middle schoolers know and that middle schoolers who grew up in private school did not know. There's actually no phrase that was off the table at my lunchroom table, and I didn't mean to make that a pun. The conversations were rated R. Well, there was actually, there was one phrase. Nobody was allowed to say Jesus Christ or oh my God when they were frustrated. And actually, even the most foul-mouthed kid, if somebody said that, it was like a record scratch in a movie and everybody would stop and go, whoa, you can't say that, man. You can't take the Lord's name in vain. Now, the reality is, I don't think that is a good idea. I don't think using God's name flippantly is wise or righteous or, or uh, the character of a Christian. But that is not what this commandment is about. The actual literal Hebrew is you shall not bear the name of the Lord your God in vain. Uh, another literal translation is you shall not carry the name of the Lord your God in vain. What could that mean? What does it mean to bear God's name? Well, Old Testament scholar Carmen Imes points this out in her book, Bearing God's Name. If you skip ahead to Exodus 28, 29, we get one of those lengthy descriptions of the garments that the priest of Israel should wear when they go to make sacrifices to Yahweh on behalf of the nation of Israel. And one of the things that the priest is supposed to wear is a breastplate with 12 stones on it, representing the 12 tribes of Israel before God. And then God says this, Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. It's the exact same language as the second commandment. The basic idea is that whenever the priest goes into the presence of God with this breastplate on, he is carrying the names of the people of Israel before God. He is representing Israel to God in intercession, pleading for mercy. He is standing in on their behalf in God's presence. When Israel draws near to Sinai in Exodus 19, God says to them, I have made you a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And that gets to the heart of this second commandment. Just as the high priest bears the name of the people of God before the presence of God, God's people bear the name of God out into the world. We carry the name of God wherever we go, made in his image, representing his character. That's what the commandment's about. It's not about what words you say when you stub your toe or somebody cuts you off in traffic. It's about how you live. It's about how you represent the God whose name you bear in whose image you have been made. There are no statues of Yahweh. There are only people made in his image and they will either bear witness to who he is through righteousness and justice and mercy or they will paint a false picture. And God says he will not hold guiltless those who bear his name in vain. Those image bearers who bear false witness, who lie about what he is like in the way that they live. So let me ask you, Baylife, how have you borne the name? this week, this month, this year? How do you bear God's name in the way that you care for your wife or your husband? 
How have you borne God's name in the way that you interact with your children? How have you borne God's name as you enter into the workplace in your business dealings? How will you bear God's name this week on social media in an election? Are people able to look at you, an image bearer of God who's been stamped with his name and see a glimpse of what he is like or do you bear false witness with your anger, your bitterness, your cruelty? This is not about policing your language. It's about guarding your conduct and the way that you live. But here's the reality. If we look at our lives, if I look at my life, it's really easy to despair when we come to this commandment. And Martin Luther actually said that's one of the purposes of the law is to drive us to despair. Because I know full well I haven't borne the name well. I know there have been times where I have carried God's name in vain, where, where I haven't represented his character, where I haven't represented his goodness, his kindness, his mercy, his justice. I have borne the name of God in vain. But here's the good news, and this is the good news of the gospel. Jesus has not borne the name in vain. He has perfectly revealed the character of God. He is the only blameless image bearer. And yet on the cross, he is punished on behalf of those who have taken God's name in vain. He carries our guilt for failing to keep the second commandment. The story of Jesus doesn't end on the cross. He's raised on the third day. He ascends into heaven. And then on the day of Pentecost, he pours out his Holy Spirit so that we can keep these commandments, so that we can bear God's name well, so that we can represent him to the world. And then, in baptism, which we celebrated just a week or two ago, God stamps his name on us again. Do, do, you, do you remember the words of your baptism? I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. God stamps his name on us afresh. And then he sends us out into the world to a sick and dying world to serve as his image bearers, carrying his name, showing the world what he is like. May the Spirit help us to do that well so that people might know that there is life in him and salvation in him alone. That's my prayer for us this week as we go forward. Can I pray for us? Father in heaven, you have given us your spirit. You've drawn us into your family. You have given us your name. God, have mercy on us where we have not represented you well. Forgive us for the times that we have placed other gods before you. Forgive us for the ways that we as your people have not shown the world what you are like with our actions. Holy Spirit, Give us strength to carry the name of Jesus out into our homes, into our workplaces, into our world. 
Help us to bear the name well so that more people might come to know that there is power in this name. Lord, these things we ask in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we say, amen. Bay life, go in peace. We'll see you next week.